This is the Elaine Massacre, a teach-in. It is cotton season here in the Delta. I grew up in the Midwest, and so I saw plenty of corn fields and soybean, but I had never seen a cotton field. And so it was a bit of a surprise to me when I first moved down here almost 20 years ago uh, to see that cotton actually blooms in the fall. Uh, I had this picture in my head of <laughs> enslaved people picking cotton in the dead heat of summer, but actually they're, they're planting, they're cultivating, of course, in the summer and months ahead. But the harvesting isn't until about this time of year, late September, early October. In just a couple of weeks, they'll begin collecting the cotton in these massive round uh, rolls of cotton that'll be shipped and processed and everything like that. But it's always striking to me uh, to see a cotton field in bloom. If you don't know the history or the context, it's actually quite beautiful. I mean, acres and acres of fluffy white cotton springing from these plants. It's a remarkable view. But of course, we do know some of the context and history. We know that the Delta is cotton country. This is where plantations were. This is where enslaved people labored for no remuneration and under the harshest of conditions. And even after emancipation, we know that other forms of labor explo exploitation took over in terms of sharecropping, which we'll be talking about tonight. And it's also striking to me that viewing these fields of cotton, it was the attempt to negotiate fair prices on cotton, just like you can see now, that led to one of the bloodiest race riots in U.S. history. It is a massacre. And unfortunately, many people don't know or don't know as much about it as they should. It's called the Elaine Massacre. It took place in 1919. And I'll talk more about it throughout this teaching. My name is Dr. Jamar Tisby. I'm a historian, author, and speaker. I'm very pleased to be able to share with you this critically important uh, and tragic event that we should all know about. It's not just black history. This is U.S. history. This is history for us all. I've got a couple of notes as we get started here. Um, first of all, I want you to know this is an introduction. This is just skimming the surface of the Elaine Massacre. I want to point you, and I'll be referring to several resources uh, throughout this evening. Um, there's a book called Blood in Their Eyes, The Elaine Race Massacres of 1919 by Griff Stockley. Uh, this is one of the early books um, in the study of this. Here's another one. This is an edited volume called The Elaine Massacre and Arkansas, A Century of Atrocity and Resistance, edited by Guy Lancaster. A bunch of different essays in here by historians looking at new data and new research about the study. I don't have the physical copy because I've got an e-copy, but another book is called On the Lapse of God. On the Lapse of God. 
And that's another resource for you. By the way, Ida B. Wells also wrote about this in a pamphlet called The Arkansas Race Riot. And so uh, there is literature out there, but surprisingly little given the magnitude of this event. Nevertheless, those are resources you can go to for more in-depth information. I'm just going to be giving you an introduction. Also, um, I want to make sure that uh, we talk about three requests, three asks I have for you. I don't want to surprise you at the end. Um, number one we are producing a documentary about this, and I will introduce you to my partner and colleague at the end. But if you watch this teach-in, if you see a little bit about this documentary and you want to support, you'll have the opportunity to do that tonight. Also, if you appreciate teach-ins like this, um, just information bringing this history to a broader public than the best way to support me to do these kinds of events is to go to my newsletter and subscribe. It's at jamartisby.substack.com, jamartisby.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can become a paid subscriber and help support events like this. And then lastly, I do have a very short survey. It's like three or four questions. It'll take you five minutes. And if you fill that survey out, which is to help us improve events like this, you will be entered to win a book bundle of my three books, The Color of Compromise, How to Fight Racism, and How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition. You may have one, but do you have all three? And are they signed? Because I will sign this book bundle and send it to you. All you have to do is fill out that survey and you will be entered for the book bundle. So stay tuned for the link. It'll be posted in the comments below this video. Okay, the agenda for tonight is simple. It's going to be three main parts. I'm going to talk about the event itself. I'm going to talk about the aftermath. And then lastly, we're going to talk about uh, the legacy, which we'll talk about the documentary in that section. So you ready? Let's dig in. So for context, this is 1919. It's known as Red Summer of 1919. There were race riots uh, all throughout the country. And by the way, terminology is sloppy here. All right. So when we say race riots in the Jim Crow era, that means white people behaving badly. That means white people killing black people. Um, we call it the Elaine massacre, but it could also be termed the Elaine race riot. Um, but just know that this is white supremacist terrorist violence directed toward black people. So that's Red Summer 1919. Now, what's happening in the Delta? If you're not familiar, the Delta is that region on both sides of the Mississippi River that extends roughly from Memphis all the way down to New Orleans and the Gulf of Mexico. It's very flat and it's very fertile because of the river. On both sides of the river, they have plantations, mainly growing cotton. Now, what we're talking about is the Arkansas side of the Delta. And so uh, this is about a little over an hour south of Memphis. You hang a right across a bridge across the Mississippi, and you're in a place called Phillips County, Arkansas. Now, I live in Phillips County. We're about 25 miles from where these events occurred, where the Elaine massacre occurred. So this is very personal to me. We'll talk about this more toward the end. So we're in the Delta. It's cotton country. It's the Jim Crow era. What's happening? Well, as I mentioned before, after emancipation, 
uh, there is still the need for cheap labor in the South in an agricultural economy. So you can't enslave people anymore, but people found a way around that. They found other ways to exploit the labor of black people. So one way is through convict leasing. We know that, you know, people, black people got imprisoned and then they were leased out for their, for their labor with again, no pay. Another form, which was even more widespread was sharecropping, uh, otherwise known as debt peonage. It's a convoluted system, but essentially, uh, sharecroppers would farm a share of land. Uh, they would take care of it. And then at harvest time, they would also get a portion of the proceeds from the crop. Well, the way it worked out so unjustly was plantation owners would never give them a fair price for their crop. What they would do is they would force uh, sharecroppers to buy tools and seed and food and supplies from a designated store, sometimes a commissary on the plantation. Uh, they didn't give money in these transactions. Sometimes they used something called scrip, was, which was only good on that plantation. And uh, they would often overcharge for these supplies. Then when the crop came in, they would often say, well, you still owe money from last year or you owe money from these uh, supplies or whatever it is. And so the sharecroppers would never make enough money to actually get out of debt or to buy their own land, which was the whole goal and purpose in the first place. So it's known as debt peonage. It's a form of labor exploitation. All of that is important to know so that you know why this group of black sharecroppers gathered on the night of September 30th, 1919. This group of sharecroppers gathered because they were part of a union called the Progressive Farmers and Household Union. They were just organizing and just getting started. I think this might have been their third meeting. And they were organizing in order to get fair prices for the cotton they themselves picked. Now, you also have to understand this isn't just a normal year. This is a, a bumper crop of cotton. They are getting incredibly high prices. In her pamphlet, The Arkansas Race Riot, Ida B. Wells notes that typically the price of cotton was uh, 12 or 14 cents a pound, somewhere in that range. When these farmers were organizing, it was going for 45 cents a pound and higher. So you can imagine if the sharecroppers actually got what they were due and what the cotton was worth, it would have lifted them out of poverty. It would have lifted them out of debt. It would have given them a chance to buy their own land, their own animals, their own equipment, their own seed, and actually begin to build their own wealth and own their own land. But that also would have meant plantation owners lose money lose labor, all of that stuff. So there was always an effort against organizing, an effort against uh, unionizing. And by the way, black labor organizing helped pave the way for the civil rights movement a couple decades later because they were able to build off of uh, these, these churches and community organizations. Uh, they were able to build off of some of the protest tactics, and that's what helped spur the civil rights movement. So this labor organizing is cr incredibly important, and it was incredibly dangerous. So what happened on the night of September 30th, 1919, the details are fuzzy for a lot of reasons. A group of black sharecroppers gathered in a church, in a church, y'all, in a church, 
These are some of the only places that black people could hold community events and some of the only places that they really had ownership of in terms of space and place. They gathered at a church to have this union meeting. Group of white people, well, they had armed guards. The black people had armed guards out um, during this meeting because they knew that the white power structure would not would not look kindly on this meeting. And sure enough, there was a group of, of white men who came. And again, the details are fuzzy, but a shootout occurred. At the end of it, one of these white law enforcement officials was wounded and the other laid dead. This was a night meeting. This occurred probably around 11 o'clock p.m. Early that morning, around 2 a.m., word had gotten out to the local white community, and they formed a posse. Uh, many of the individuals in that posse were from the American Legion. This is right after World War I. These are veterans. And so they gather together, they arm themselves, and they go essentially hunting. So commences two days of massacre. Most of the carnage occurred the next day on October 1st. Uh, white people came in from Tennessee, Mississippi, all over uh, the area in Arkansas, and descended on this small farming community. Uh, Hoopspur is where the actual church was, and then Elaine was uh, a, a town very nearby. And the bodies started piling up. The estimates of those killed range wildly, but into over a hundred, uh, some estimates nearly 200 black sharecroppers killed. In the process, the governor was called. Governor was alerted. Governor immediately contacts the War Department. He asked for U.S. troops. He does ultimately get uh, U.S. troops from Camp Pike. The governor, Charles Hillman Bro, accompanies these U.S. troops on a train to Phillips County, the troops get there, and according to eyewitness reports, the U.S. troops are alleged to have killed and participated in this massacre, which would implicate the federal government, which would implicate the military in lynching is what occurred. And so um, by October 2nd, the military had basically taken control they had sent the white folks home. They had rounded up literally hundreds of black people. Uh, and they set about sorting through what happened. Now, let me pause here and explain what's going on. When this shootout occurred at the union meeting, the word went out by white people across newspapers and telegrams and things like that of a Negro insurrection a Negro, a black uprising. Understand, people, this was a fear of the white establishment for decades, dating back to before the Civil War. Why? Multiple reasons. Number one, black people were by far the majority in these communities, and that's still true to this day. And so just by the numbers, a lot of white people were anxious because if black people really did rise up, they would overwhelm the white community. But I think there's also a deeper reason. Deeper reason, 
is the guilt and the shame of racial oppression. Somehow deep down inside, white people afraid, knowing that what they were doing was wrong, knowing that what they were doing was was um, dehumanizing and suspecting, maybe even feeling like they deserved some retaliation and always anticipating black people would one day do to white people what white people had done to them. But this was propaganda. This is propaganda. This is the message that was deliberately crafted and massaged to stoke fear of black people being violent toward white people when the reality was precisely the opposite. Let me read you, in fact, um, the, the mission statement of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union, this group that was characterized as so malicious. This is what it said. It said, the object of this organization shall be to advance the interests of the Negro morally and intellectually and to make him a better citizen and a better farmer. That's what the union wanted to do. So this carnage was horrific. That church that the union met in, white people burned it down the next day. And when I say church, this is a wooden shack, barely. Like, it's not a fancy place. It's what these black sharecroppers could afford, and they burned it down. Um, Ida B. Wells, in talking about the carnage, said that people, uh, white people raided the homes of black sharecroppers. They stole the food that these sharecroppers had been storing up for the winter. And she called them, the black sharecroppers, refugees from pillaged homes. There was a report in 1927, an academic paper that said there was barbarism such as cutting off the ears or toes of dead Negroes for souvenirs and the dragging of their bodies through the streets of Elaine are told by witnesses. So understand the carnage here. Bodies are left in the street. Uh, body parts are being cut off. Bodies are being literally dragged through the streets. And then they also stole the very cotton that the union sharecroppers had been organizing in order to get fair prices. So they were left even poorer than when they began. Now, in the aftermath, uh, they brought charges to 122 people. 75 of them were convicted. 12 were sentenced to death. And we'll talk more about that in the upcoming section. One of the things that I think is important for us to realize, why would we talk about this event 123 years ago? I often say that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession. And there can be no confession without truth. The beginning of the process of healing is truth-telling. And as tragic and as painful as these events are, we have to tell the truth about them, especially when they've been deliberately mischaracterized, covered up, or silenced. So we've just heard a lot, and it's heavy. What I want to do now is take about 60 seconds don't go anywhere. We'll come right back with part two, the aftermath of the Elaine Massacre. 
We are at part two of this. And what we are talking about is the aftermath of the Elaine massacre. And so uh, we're going to focus in particular on the court case. Just skim the surface again. And then after that, we'll talk about the decades of silence, the ambiguity around this event, why it's been so hard to talk about it. And then we'll roll into the last part around the documentary. So after the events of the massacre, what happens is the white power establishment conspires together to make sure that this thing doesn't continue because the white community is still afraid. They're still anxious. Some of them still have blood in their eyes as the title of the book says. And so many times in these events, uh, even after the black folks are arrested and, and in jail, mobs will come and they will drag these folks out of jail in order to lynch them. They'll burn them, they'll hang them, they'll shoot them, and they won't wait for the wheels of so-called justice to, to, to grind slowly. They'll take it into their own hands. So what the white power establishment says is, listen, we know y'all are angry, but don't take this into your own hands. Let us handle it through the courts. Why? They don't want the state to look bad. They don't want the community to look bad because they know if further reports of lynchings leak out, it's not, it's not good for them. It's not good for the community. It's not good for business. So they make an arrangement and they basically say, don't lynch them on the streets. In my view, they essentially said, we'll lynch them in the courts. We'll do it legally. So what happens is they round up almost any black person they can find. And by the way, these black folks are often armed. Everyone was. Every family had a rifle or a shotgun, mostly for hunting, but also some self-defense. And so even during the massacre, black folks were fighting back, some of them. But many of them ran in were hiding and they hid in the woods, they hid in the cane breaks and all of those things. So they rounded up hundreds, literally hundreds of people, ended up uh, charging 122 people. 75 of them were convicted. And then of that group, 12 of them were convicted of murder and sentenced to execution by electric chair. So those 12 men became known as the Elaine 12. By the way, did you catch it's called Elaine and not Elaine? Just, just a Southernism. Just, you'll get used to it. So the Elaine 12 are actually pictured on the promo graphic for this teach-in. And uh, their court case, one, one in particular, became really, really important and influential to the civil rights movement later on. And I'll talk about that. So with these 12 men, they were convicted. They were sentenced to be executed. Now, understand these court cases take literally years to play out. And these men are in prison the entire time. What happens is NAACP has already gotten word of the massacre. They sent Walter White down, one of their field secretaries who reported on it. And NAACP uh, hired a black lawyer from Little Rock named Scipio Jones to help defend the Elaine 12. Scipio Jones was also working in partnership with some white lawyers from Little Rock as well. Basically what happened is their lawyers um, appealed these cases. And by the way, on the convictions, I have to mention this. On the convictions themselves, um, 
the black sharecroppers had white lawyers appointed to them, mostly local. They put up no defense. They didn't call witnesses. They didn't dismiss any jurors for bias. They didn't cross-examine witnesses. In other words, they did not put up any defense, so they didn't really give the defendants due process, and that'll be important in a moment. So the Elaine 12, defended by Scipio Jones and his team, uh, they were appealing and appealing and appealing. What happened was, on the first appeal, the group of 12 gets split up into two equal groups of six. For six of the defendants, their case um, was determined, uh, was dismissed on a technicality and had to be retried. Their case was dismissed on technicality and had to be retried. So they weren't let go. They weren't off the loose, off the hook. Their cases just had to be tried again. The other group, um, their convictions were upheld, but then the lawyers kept appealing. And so these two groups, the one group that had, um, the retrial was known as the Ware defendants, W-A-R-E, after one of the, the men convicted. And then the other group is more known as the Moore defendants, M-O-O-R-E. Uh, that group, their convictions were affirmed, but their court cases kept being appealed. So over the course of years, this case is working its way through um, the local courts, through the state courts, through the appeals court. And one of the cases gets all the way up to the Supreme Court. So the Moore v. Dempsey case, the Moore defendants, their case gets appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And in February of 1923, the Supreme Court ruled that these six black sharecroppers, known as the Moore defendants, did not get a fair trial. They were not given due process. And so what the Supreme Court did is send the case back to the state of Arkansas. Again, the men were not exonerated. They were not released. They're still in prison at this time. But what the Supreme Court said was, y'all didn't give these men a fair trial. And you had chance after chance after chance. And it was clearly biased. It was clearly unfair. So do it again is basically what happened. Now, this is critically important, particularly for the civil rights movement to come. Why? Because it set a precedent for the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene in court cases that had already been argued and decided at the state level. What this did was set an example for civil rights activists in later years to craft a legal strategy around. So you'll know that the NAACP, people like uh, Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall and their whole legal team, their strategy for gaining black civil rights and desegregation was to litigate it, was to work through the courts. And they looked at cases like Moore v. Dempsey because they said, if we can get these court, these cases taken up by the Supreme Court, then they can overrule some of the stuff that's happening at the state level where there's really no chance of the white power establishment, whether the legislature or the courts, to really take the side of black people. So they used Moore v. Dempsey as sort of uh, proof that they could argue these cases at the highest court level and perhaps gain some traction. So that was one of the really important, significant outcomes of the Elaine Race Massacre and the trials that came afterward is the Moore v. Dempsey case that said, well, maybe, maybe, 
at the highest level of the judiciary, we can find some fairness, some justice after all. Now, the record is spotty, but it was, it was part of the strategy. Those were the more defendants. I'll come back to them in a second. The where defendants, they were the ones who they said there needs to be a retrial. That retrial never happened. You went through several, uh, cycles of legislatures and, and different terms of officials and the case never happened. Just being kept being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Nobody would take it up. So finally, lawyers for this where group said, listen, the case hasn't been retried. You need to let these folks go. And actually, on June 5th, 1923, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Ware defendants, said they they had been delayed too long. The trial wasn't happening. Let them go. And so finally, on June 5th, 1923, the, the Ware defendants are released. But it would be another several months into 1924 that the more defendants uh, are still in prison. And what happened here is very interesting. Scipio Jones is on the case the whole time. He's trying to make deals with the governors because there had been uh, subsequent governors after after the initial event. And so finally, he gets one governor to agree to put these men on an indefinite furlough. Furlough means you get a get released from prison. But you're still convicted and you, sh- you can be called back anytime. Usually a furlough is for a set amount of time, but they did an indefinite furlough and they just released these men. And what happened was they were never called back to prison. So they were essentially released on a furlough that never ended. But what's critically important to realize is they were never exonerated. They were never pardoned. So according to the law books and the criminal records, these six more defendants are still guilty of murder. So one of the action steps that uh, people have undertaken recently is to try to get the governor, the current governor right now in the present day, to pardon these men, to exonerate them so that their records are clean. Even though they're long dead, their descendants are here. And the record is still here. If you didn't know anything about the Elaine massacre and you just looked at the court records of these men, it would appear that they were guilty of murder. So one of the things that we want to do is get them exonerated, get them finally pardoned, make sure that uh, the justice process continues. So ultimately, these Elaine 12 were released. It took a monumental amount of effort Uh like I said, Ida B. Wells, Walter White, NAACP, Scipio Jones, and so many people just to get this modicum of justice. And let me ask you this. How many white people do you think were convicted of these murders, of these lynchings during the Elaine race massacre? If you said one, that's one too many. No one. So according to the justice system and legal records, all of these black people were killed because they were the aggressor and white people killed them purely out of self-defense. That's what the record says to this day. That's why we need something like a teach-in. As we transition to the next and final section, let me just say this. Um, one of the reasons why I think that we don't know 
about this race massacre is because um, it in, it's, it's rural and it involves really poor black people. So we know about other race massacres like in Tulsa. And I think one of the reasons we know, even though we don't know nearly enough and enough people don't know, it's, it's an important event to know. But one of the reasons why a race massacre like that is more well known than an Elaine massacre is because, um, it involved urban folks and wealthy folks. It was known as Black Wall Street, right? And so that, that, that really exceptional nature of black people accumulating any wealth at all in a white supremacist era was uh, remarkable. And so I think partly that lends to some of the headlines. But in addition, uh, or on the flip side, I should say, what if they're not in a big city where there's not a lot of eyes, where there's not a lot of resources, where there's not a big local paper or whatever it might be? And what if they're not wealthy like a black Wall Street? But what if they're extremely poor, like these black sharecroppers? Do we care about the lives of the poor as much as we care about the lives of the wealthy? We say black lives matter, but do poor black lives matter? People in poverty? That's one of the reasons why, in my view, we don't know enough about the Elaine race massacre, in addition to the fact that there was really a conspiracy of silence. White people in the white community did not want to talk about this, even if they knew their relatives were involved, um, friends or family members, they didn't talk about this. And black people also didn't talk about it, for, but for very different reasons. There was fear of reprisal. You can't bring this up. Folks, white folks are going to get mad and they'll, they'll act out. But there was also the grief and the trauma of it all. To go back and relive or retell the events of a murdered loved one or friend or church member or family member. So for decades, we haven't talked about this and we need to. And that's one of the reasons why we are making a documentary project about this. In our next session, we'll, we'll talk about that. But first, this brief video to give you a little introduction to this documentary project. In 1919, one of our nation's deadliest massacres occurred in Elaine, Arkansas. A meeting of black sharecroppers who were trying to organize for better prices on the cotton they picked turned violent when the local white community heard about their activities. What ensued was 72 hours of bloodshed that left nearly 200 people, almost all of them black, dead. The Valley of Dry Bones documentary tells the history of the Elaine massacre that has been hidden or ignored for too long. You'll learn about the Elaine 12, a group of black men sentenced to death for leading what white leaders called a Negro insurrection, and their lawyer, Scipio Jones, whose victory in court helped lay the legal groundwork for challenges to lynching, Jim Crow segregation, and white supremacy during the Civil Rights Movement. We'll pay special attention to the story of the historic Centennial Baptist Church, which played a crucial role in building the black community prior to the massacre, but lost hundreds of members in the ensuing years as they fled the racial terrorism of the region. Now, as filmmakers, we're creating this series because we genuinely love our community. 
We're a team of local residents who have bought homes, raised families, and worked here for years. We see the immense potential and resilience of this place and its people. And we also see the pride we can take in knowing that so many events of national importance find their roots in this humble, rural community. But we also recognize that in order to move forward, we have to tell the honest truth. This kind of historical truth-telling holds the potential for racial justice and healing. It can help us as a nation finally transcend the prejudices and power imbalances that have kept us divided for centuries. We invite you to join us in creating this documentary series with a pledge of financial support. Click on the link below and make your contribution today. Welcome back. Uh, that was exciting, wasn't it? I love that video. Um, and it's just a taste. It's just a preview of the kind of work that this guy does. Nolan Dean, welcome, my friend. Thank um, you. For the folks who are just meeting you, tell us how you ended up in the Delta. So my short answer to that question is always a beautiful woman. <laughs> so always. Uh, Jamar got here through Teach for America, which is kind of like the Peace Corps for education That's right. in America. And that's how my wife got here. She was a part of the core of 2010. We were both friends down in Austin. We both went to the Austin Stone Community Church and were real involved there. And after some years of us both being in Arkansas, I was like, what's the Delta like? What's her life like? So I came down and found that I, I liked her and I liked this place more <laughs> than I place. expected. Yeah. And then you stuck around, you bought a house, you're raising a family mm -hmm. here, which is all really crucial to this project. And we'll talk about that in a second. But you're also a filmmaker. Yeah. You do an excellent work, as folks just saw. Tell us about Cherry Street Productions, your hopes and your visions for that, doing something like this in the Delta. Yeah. So, you know, the Delta, Phillips County always ranks in like the bottom 15 worst places to live, according to USA Today. <laughs> Because they rank these things based upon economy, healthcare, you know, kind of these like just baseline Education, statistics. income, all of that. Right. Yep. And I find that those, uh, those statistics are a little superficial. I find this place to be an incredible place to live because it's rich in the things that matter the most to me. Mm. It's rich in community. It's simple. It's not stressful. Um, and your very presence is very meaningful to the community and the people here. And it's very rich in story, as, oh, yes. as we know. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so, so my goal is to basically elevate the Delta, do my part by telling great stories, by providing these services in this region. But also, I, I think that the world has a vitamin deficiency in those very things that the Delta is rich in. Mm. So while they may not have money down here, it has a lot of what other places with money is lacking. And I think that the stories from this region can really uh, enrich the world. That's a beautiful way to put it. A vitamin deficiency in the rest of the country that places like the Delta can help provide. You're doing, we're doing this documentary. What about the Elaine Massacre said we need a film project to tell this story? Yeah, so really, I kind of got into this uh but backwards, I'm going to try to keep my curses down. So I did a, a, we, we finished the fourth film in the series about the memorial. The memorial was built on the hundredth anniversary of the massacre. Mm. And it tells, shows this beautiful picture of reconciliation. It's a great model for what other communities can do about past injustices that they think happened so far long ago that there's nothing we can do about it now. Well, there are things that we can do about it. This memorial is a great example. Yeah. 
uh, is a great conversation piece for our community and has really kind of led the way for more uh, works that are being done to address the Elaine Massacre that our documentary series will also follow. Mm. Speaking of which, we got to give a shout out to the, the Silent No More exhibit happening yes. in Elaine, Arkansas this weekend. So if you're in Arkansas or Mississippi, it's worth going to Elaine and seeing uh, that exhibit where the descendants are finally speaking about the their actual descendants, the y'all. actual de- so descendants powerful. speaking about their ancestors' yeah. experiences. So that's at the old Elaine High School, 100 College Street, I believe, in Elaine, Arkansas, this weekend. Um, it's a small town. You won't be able to yeah. miss it. Yeah, <laughs> you can't. Um, yeah. So the, the the documentary project. Why you thought we needed to tell this in a in a film form? Yeah. And then what are your what are your what are your hopes for? Well, tell us about a little bit about the structure, how it's structured, and then what are your hopes for the film? Yeah. So um, ultimately, we we had finished this memorial film, but it's the end of it. it's it's the end of of one story, the beginning of another, of a century long saga. And, yeah. Uh-huh. And it feels like we needed a almost a trilogy of prequels. The the massacre itself needed a story. The trial itself is a riveting tale. It needs its own film. Yeah. And we need to also establish the black community's story, their their context leading into the massacre. What did Reconstruction look like? Phillips County is a really interesting place uh, based upon its history. We won't go too deep into the freedom camps that that led to this metropolitan area in the middle of rural America. Right. But, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a fascinating place. I mean, as, as we're, as we're uncovering just this one story, we're uncovering so many other layers of story that truly connect nationally, really. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a, a whole bunch of reasons why people in far parts of the country, way far away from the Delta would and should care about this place, the people, and the stories here. Yeah. So, yeah. absolutely. So, one of the things that we're trying to do is have resources for this project. And so, here's the ask. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if this story is important, if you think this content is important, um, if you'd like to see this in a film version, then we would love for your financial support. We're going to drop some links in the comment you can pay with via PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, uh, Venmo mm-hmm. you know. And, and we made it really easy. So if you've got your phone right now, you can open up Venmo and donate to CS Film Foundation. That stands for the Cherry Street Film Foundation. PayPal, paypal.me, CS Film Foundation, Cash App, the dollar signs, they don't do ets. CS Film Foundation. Look at that. Yeah. Seamless. So Cherry Street Film Foundation. Cherry Street is the old Main Street. And for us, this film foundation is about elevating the Delta and rebuilding it through the power of storytelling. And that if you saw Cherry Street and what its condition looks mm-hmm. like, you would understand why we think that rebuilding this place begins with this old Main Avenue that's, that's right. That's in disrepair. So if people donate, if we make this film, which we will, um, mm-hmm. but where is it going to end up? Where can people see it? How would they point people to it if, you know, once this is all said and done? Yeah. So this is an ongoing conversation Jamar and I are having. We um, would love for it to be to reach as wide of an audience as possible. And so we think about streamers such as Netflix, but we also really have a heart for education and we love to see it uh, reach schools small groups. Uh, each film is a short film, so it's about 15 to 20 minutes in length. 
which plays really well for any type of setting that's about 45 minutes long or an mm-hmm. hour long to be able to have a discussion afterwards. Yes, it would be amazing to see this in church small groups and Bible studies and seminary classes, you know, all over the place. We can use this as educational content to help us teach uh, teach folks not only about U.S. history and the, and, and, and the event um, of the Elaine Massacre itself, but to talk about lament mm-hmm. and repentance and healing and repair as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So we would love your support in this endeavor. Thank you so much for joining us, Nolan. I'm so glad that we get to work together on this project. And thank you for joining us for the Elaine Massacre, a teach-in. Remember to fill out the Google survey. We'll drop a link in the comments. You'll be entered to win a book bundle. And this is just the beginning. So please do do a simple Google search, uh, pick up some books and some literature about the Elaine Massacre, point people to this video, and let's spread the word about this important U.S. history event. Thanks very much. Have a great night.